On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Marion Farah. She is the head of experiments and optimization at Zymergen. I'm going to cover a few topics. We're going to be touching on the uncertainty she deals with in her job and how she has to accommodate for that, working with the product team. She works in a very interesting environment and industry where you have an infinite amount of solutions and options at your disposal. And how does she go about dealing with that? We're going to talk about uh, if you're looking to get into data science and you've ever wanted to know some pointers and you know what areas of opportunities you can look at in terms of making a career shift or, or ramping into the industry, we're going to talk about that. And also about environments, right? You need the right environment so that you can be comfortable and grow. We're going to touch on that. Marion, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate it. So I've not done justice, obviously, with your background. I always like to set some context to the episode. So if you could provide a little bit of background about who you are, what you do, how you got here to let the audience get to know you a little bit better. So formerly, I'm a Bayesian statistician turned data scientist. First things first, I like to think of myself as a farm girl from Syria who got lucky and made it to the United States. And I was educated here. I got a bachelor's in mathematics and then a master's in statistics with emphasis in biostatistics. And then I discovered Bayesian statistics. And like we say, the rest is history. Out of grad school, I went to Cambridge in the UK, where I worked in a medical research center on solving problems for epidemic modeling, like, you know, swine flu. And now that's becoming very interesting. And then after that, I came back to the United States and worked at the Climate Corporation, worked on problems in weather science and remote sensing and agricultural tech. And then I took a year off and created my own consulting company for about a year and worked with some venture capitalists and and other companies uh, who are in stealth mode to advise them on data science stuff. And then I decided to come back to employment and I've been at Zymogen for nearly a year and a half. Awesome. Awesome. I know when we're talking uh, off air, we were talking about some of the challenges that uh, you guys have at Zymergen. So maybe just uh, a little intro to, for people that don't know what Zymergen does. Maybe just give us a, a little bit of high level. Absolutely. So at Zymergen, we design, engineer, and optimize microbes so that they can make material and molecules more efficiently or make completely new ones. So let me start from the beginning here. Places like offices, homes, and even farms are full of stuff that are made from petroleum. The petroleum is cracked apart into smaller molecules called monomers, then recombined into polymers, which make the scaffolding of a lot of stuff that we use today. From clothing to toothpaste to uh, food sweeteners, fragrances, ingredients of medicines and fertilizer, petroleum is everywhere. And at Zymergen, we want to change that paradigm. We, We want to partner with nature to utilize genetically optimized microbes to produce these types of molecules and material more sustainably. Yeah, I think when we were talking about it, I, uh, you know, for the record, I think if we want to talk about what you do, it'd have to be a whole separate podcast because I think <laughs> uh, you guys sound like you're doing some mad scientist stuff, which is really uh, super interesting. But let's talk about one aspect of what's happening there. So you mentioned to me before, there literally is an infinite permutation of solutions you guys have at your disposal. You're responsible for head of experiments and optimization. What does that mean for someone in your role when you have that kind of just wide field ahead of you? Yes. So let me tell you a little bit first about the microbes uh, that we're working with. So uh, humans have used microbes for millennia to make wine and beer through fermentation, right? So um, alcohol then can be produced in a natural way. You know, there is already a microbe to naturally produce it. But 
we are interested in making molecules for which natural microbes can't make them alone. We need to optimize their genetics. So we need to change their genome to produce something more efficiently or produce completely new material. And to do that, we utilize three things, automation, so robots, data science, and genetic engineering. And available to me as a data scientist, I have data coming off at the robots, so measured data. I have simulations that our scientists code up to understand metabolic processes involved. And I also have available to me, you know, sequences of edited genomes. And so I have to work with all of it. And there's uncertainty everywhere. The uncertainty of the measurement could be due to the instrument itself. There could be also bias in a process that we collect the data. But the uncertainty coming from actually simulating how the science works comes from our lack of understanding. We always have imperfect understanding of how nature does something, you know? And then you layer other uncertainties on top of that from the way we choose to model things. And so I work in an environment where I often have to do data fusion, data coming from the simulation, data coming from the instrument, data even coming from in academic collaboration where I don't know the processes involved in which they collected the data. So I call myself an uncertainty launderer. So I launder uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best title. I've, I've, I've recorded a lot of podcasts now. It's my favorite uncertainty launderer. I love that. I'm not going to forget that. So I guess when you're looking at the scope of just initiatives and obviously you work with the product team really close. Talk to me about that relationship, right? So, I mean, obviously you guys are partnering. What's that like, again, when you're basically scientifically in, in creating brand new materials and whatnot? What's that relationship? So the relationship is both with our science group and with our product management, right? So suppose we acquire new technology. We just actually have, we acquired a company in April called Innovolve and now they're based in Boston. And we refer to them now as Z Boston uh, for Zymergen Boston. And so the new technology basically is centered around something called biosensors. So it's a piece of DNA that you add to the microbe genome and it fluoresces when it's hit by a laser. And the fluorescence is actually correlated with the amount of product that that enzyme is going to make in the cell. And so we get a new technology that we want to utilize in the workflow that we have at the company. So how do we turn that into an efficient workflow that involves multiple teams? And how do we actually begin to unravel the opportunity that we have at our hands? We have an opportunity here to replace some of the workflows that we have, to answer new problems, discover new correlations. So the product team comes in and they talk to the various teams and they come up with a roadmap. Everybody is at the table, the data science team is at the table, the science folks are at the table and the product management at the table. And we come up with a strategy to what are the low hanging fruit? Let's tackle that. Now, where do we want to be in a year? Let's think about the workflows and the data pipelines that we need to create to get us there. Now, in a couple of years, we want to be answering richer problems. So what should we be doing right now to make that possible? Interesting. I, I just uh, keep thinking, man, I wish I could uh, come to work with you for a day because I'm sure there's some crazy stuff you guys talk about. So when it comes to like, you know, the day-to-day, right? So you're sitting down with the product team, you guys get, you know, there's a new invention. How does that impact your prioritization, right? You're head of experiments optimization. So obviously 
you know, you're part of probably the, you know, talking about prioritization of how you set up those experiments. When something new comes up where you guys didn't expect it, is it like impact it with a, hey, let's drop everything and go in this new direction? Or do you have to kind of look at the impact? I mean, what, what does that look like for you? That's a great question. So we have a motto at work, at least for my department, and we say delivery eats first. So things that you know, we have contracts that need to be fulfilled. We have programs that have very tight deadlines. Those eat first. <laughs> and then we think about, you know, you don't want to drop the long-term strategy. Again, going back to in two years, where do I want to be? What problems do I want to have solved? So it's a balancing act, definitely between answering the right now versus the future. And I have to keep an eye on both, to be honest. And it's really hard. So, you know, I'm leading experiments and optimization. So I'm often having to design experiment, literally design experiments, you know, in a classic sense to optimize for something. And then I also have to optimize. We're getting a completely new technology and I have to think about how do I get the most bang for the buck at every step of utilizing that technology? I hope that answered your question. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think um, that's got to be a very, I guess, delicate balancing act of, you know, obviously you have the long-term strategy and and right now you have to you know, obviously execute and deliver. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a careful balancing act of uh, managing resources. I guess when it comes to your team, what happens when those shifts happen for the team? Obviously, you're having them focus on delivery, focus on the long-term. How do you help them balance that? Yes. So like any technology team, you know, we do project management, we use JIRA tickets, you might be familiar with those, and we break the work into sprints. And so that helps frame the problem into smaller segments. There's always fires that need to be turned off. Something went wrong. We got to take care of it right now. And so the balancing act is that, you know, we know what's important. The whole team needs to know what's important right now, what's important in the long run. So as long as we're honest and transparent, I think it creates an environment where people can be successful. Awesome. I guess to switch up gears a little bit on the conversation, I know you mentioned something that you're passionate about is people getting into data science. Obviously, you know, you uh, came into the industry, you obviously, you know, came here from Syria you had to obviously make that transition. I know environments that help nurture people are important to you. But first things first, if someone's looking to get into data science, right? And I know this is a passion for you. What's your general advice to people in those situations? Uh, my advice here is that you got to know why people use different methods to solve different problems. You know, some people come into data science having taken a course in deep neural networks, and those are amazing. They solve a lot of problems, but they don't solve every problem. And also they can be computationally expensive. So I would advise people to take a course in design of experiments. Gotta know, sometimes you gotta test things. You know, the design of experiments will help you if you get a job where you have to do a lot of A-B testing. If, especially if you're in biotech, you need to know the fundamentals of the design of experiments. So an intro course to design of experiments is really helpful. I would also recommend an intro course into machine learning methods, you know, how regression versus classification. So these two courses have zero regret. You will always use them in the future. And you got to know the pros and cons and the assumptions because the results are absolutely tainted by the assumptions. And I said the word tainted on purpose because sometimes there's an adverse result there. 
And it's because you made the wrong assumptions. Other things, you know, as a data scientist, you got to code and you got to demonstrate that you can code. Get a GitHub account. Start committing code to GitHub. Understand what it means to version your code. Understand testing. Have you ever written a unit test before? It's really a good idea to get in the habit of, as you're writing those functions, to know how to test them. And finally, you know, a big one is to understand what data science workflows are like. You know, you got to collect the data and understand the data collection mechanism where there are biases that influence the way the data was collected and so on. And then, you know, what does it mean to train your model? There are steps to training your model and to understanding how well it fit your data. And you got to know how to validate And then you got to know how to tell the story of the results. Data scientists are storytellers. So get good at telling the story. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's some great advice. I guess maybe to dive into a little bit more of the development, right? And this can be maybe more of an industry view. Obviously, you've been doing it for a while. So the emergence of the need for data scientists to become better developers. So obviously, you know, Bayesian statistician, you obviously were comfortable with some components of maybe code, but in a different context. How has that kind of shifted onto data science to move as they're moving more towards product and they're integrating, you know, maybe further left versus just, actually, no, maybe integrating more further right, right? They're no longer just developing model, handing it off. They're involved maybe with some of the development. So how's the development impacted the industry thus far or what you've seen? So if a statistician joins a really big company and they're working on a stats team, They may be just in charge of developing the algorithm, validating it on a small data set, and they're working often just on their machine. But that's not how the world works. Probably downstream from them is an engineer that's going to take the algorithm and optimize it and deploy it on large data sets. In a smaller company, the data scientist has to wear multiple hats. And that's where, you know, being a developer is important. So I have friends who just do the stats on their computer. <laughs> they don't need you know, a farm of CPUs. And then they hand that over to an engineer that's going to take care of it. So it depends on where you're going to ultimately work. But you've got to know the pros and cons, and especially the computational expense of the method that you're working on and the volume of the data that it's going to be applied to. So you got to learn some skills that will enable you to be successful in these kinds of problems. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I like how you phrase it, the storytelling piece, right? So that's very integral to data scientists and being able to deal with other people and to explain what is a very complex model in a very simplified manner. I mean, is that something learned? Is that something you go work on standing in front of a mirror? That seems like to be more art than the science because it's something you have to build internally to get to. Yeah, that is something learned. And it comes with practice as well. I remember, you know, different world, but similar story. I remember when I first started to learn physics and the way to learn physics was to do a lot of physics problems. And it's similar here. It's about knowing your audience as well. You know, for me, my audience is scientists. And so it is important to come up with a model that I can explain that is interpretable. You know, and then once they trust me because they can interpret the model, then I can take it to the next step where I maybe complicate the model, you know, use a neural network with features that are derived within the model itself and they're not revealed to them. Right. So you got to know your audience. You got to know what they're receptive to. Start with something that they trust 
and then work your way into making them trust you where they actually might not understand the machine learning model. That's widely applicable to a lot of industries, but something, I mean, especially you know, what you're doing where it's, it's very scientific, it has a lot of probably nuance you're presenting to scientists who are might not be as technical as we think, right? They're scientists, they're focusing on what they know, their subject matter in their area. So translating to the subject matter is the key because obviously if you lose them, then you have an uphill battle of trying to gain confidence. I think that confidence and the trust is where that storytelling piece plays an integral part. Yeah, and this is where I also like to give advice on practice giving presentations. There are meetups that are happening around the world for data science, and some of them are super local, just to your community. Like there are a few here in San Francisco, and I'm sure in every major city in the world. And so sign up, give a lightning talk, learn how to give a lightning talk in five minutes, learn how to give you know a deeper talk in 30 minutes, learn how to give a, an hour long plenary talk. You will never regret that. That's great advice. 100%. I mean, now that everything's virtual for most people, the storytelling component, you know, through a format like Meetup on a Zoom or whatever, I think it's something that we can control. We're going to do a lot of Zoom meetings for a while. So I think practice is going to definitely be integral. What about the environment, right? So somebody's joining a company, whether they're experienced or entry level, I think it's probably applicable is as a manager, what things do you look for you know, to create that environment that kind of allows somebody to come in and excel and kind of you know, just progress their career and become more proficient? Right. So I think what you're hinting at here is allyship, or at least I call it that. It's using my privilege, whether it's my tenure at a company or my rank or anything that, it, you know, in some instances, it's your race that is your privilege. Using everything that gives you that privilege to welcome that person in and make them feel whole and that we're invested in their growth. And it's different, like you mentioned, you know, someone who just finished grad school or even finished their bachelor's at whatever level they're coming in, you know, you might need to do some handholding, but handholding with respect and with care. and. It's about sharing what you know and showing that you believe in them to take the leap into completing a project. For more senior folks, obviously, you know, it's about onboarding them efficiently and successfully and getting them connected to the core technology and stack so they can start delivering. When you see somebody come in, I guess, and you see them struggling, right? Everyone wants to contribute immediately. You know, sometimes it doesn't quite launch that way and it might feel out of place. You know, as a manager, what are some things that you've done or you've, you know, what signs do you see to help somebody when, you know, they've initially started and it's like, well, it's a little bit of transition period, but it's not going so smooth up front. Yes. It's always great to have an onboarding buddy. It's a great technique that is used in a lot of companies. And I love that one. And the onboarding buddy is not just there for, you know, the first couple of weeks. They're there for the next few months. And I'm there always, you know, you've probably heard, you know, some people talk about, Hey, you know, in terms of like the technical work that they take on, you know, it's, it's a 60, 40, where I'm managing 60% of the time and doing technical work 40% of the time. Yeah. For me, it is like, you know, sometimes 60, 40, sometimes 80, 20, but guess what? That's like what I tell you. But the truth is I'm a hundred percent of the time their manager. And they should know that. I'm not 60, 40, they're a manager, 100% day and night. And I'm there to make them successful. I think that's well put. I think, I guess, yeah, the balance of 
being a hands-on manager, that's always the pressure of having that IC component while still managing a team and not getting drawn into your own stuff. I think that's fantastic advice. I guess in terms of when you've actually seen people move into management, right? Just, uh, I know we talked about entry-level people and kind of the skills. When you see somebody progressing into management, obviously they're senior. I see, you know, they're going to take that first manager role. Are there any skills that you look back and you go, or, or when you have somebody on team making that movie, you're like, these are the kind of skills that you need to start working on before you get to that point. So once they're there, it's a little bit more seamless uh, transition. Yes. I think to be a successful manager, you need to practice the skill of setting expectations early on. Setting expectations about ownership, about deliverables, about timelines, understanding that there is always a trade-off between scope, time, and resources, right? So you know, if you want to get something done real quick, you're going to need three engineers. <laughs> but, you know, if the scope is not that large, then, oh, maybe I can bring it down to two engineers. So I call it the triangle of project management, resources, time, and scope, right? So these are things that you got to start practicing. Awesome. I think that's, I mean, super sound in terms of what you're looking to accomplish. Do you have any highlights that you're like, you know, I still have these kind of personal goals that I'm kind of developing or focusing on? Yes, I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to get get a ticket for NeuroEps, the neural network, AI and neural network conference in December. I'm working with my team, everyone on a team on uh, career development plans that I'm hoping that by the end of the year, we will all see that uh, we're on target. And I'm learning a lot about machine learning methods for data fusion in the realm of uh, discovering polymers with uh, desirable properties. So a lot of exciting things. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you got a lot on your plate, a lot trying to accomplish. Just out of curiosity, because I think I ask a lot of managers this question is, obviously you have a team, you're mentoring, you're helping manage. I'm sure you have a manager. Who do you turn to for like advice and mentorship? Is it always your manager or is it somebody else for you? That's a great question. So for certain things, I definitely go to my manager first. For others, I have a network of friends and mentors from back in grad school and uh, you know other professional places where I worked. So I feel very blessed to have a lot of people that I can call on for help. Awesome. If someone wants to reach out to you, you know, follow up on any of the advice you gave. Is LinkedIn a good avenue? Is there another way that somebody should reach out? LinkedIn is great. I'm also active on Twitter. My handle is Bayesian Girl. That's awesome. We'll make sure to uh, include both those handles on the show notes. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I, I think this is great actionable advice. I know we talked a lot about like people coming into the industry and I think somebody who hears this podcast should definitely have some good ideas of what they need to do to kind of ramp in. Because I know a lot of people get into it, they do the boot camp, they do the degree. And it's like, I deal with it on the hiring side of how do I get my first job? And it's like, well, here's some really awesome steps, especially the meetup and really developing tell a story uh, uh, skills. So thank you for discussing all this. You're welcome. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the podcast. And we're going to wrap that up for this week. We will be back again next week with another episode, another guest. As always, looking for topic ideas. There's questions you have. We look for people who can help address those. Also, subscribe to the podcast. That's the only way 
more people are going to hear it and let us know how we're doing good or bad. I'm, I'm definitely eager to improve the podcast feedback. the only way we could do that until next week. Thank you. 